Welcome to Of Note. In this four-part mini-series, we're having candid conversations with investors and leaders around the state of South Carolina about the one thing at the top of every entrepreneur's mind, funding. Herbert L. Drayton joins us this week in our final episode of the funding mini-series to talk about minority challenges in the world of fundraising and investment. Laura McIntosh has the full interview. Listeners, I am stoked to have with us today Herbert Drayton. You know, really kind of dive into this topic of you know, beating down the venture capital diversity problem. It's a highly documented issue. Uh, but, for, but before we get into that, I obviously want to introduce you know Herbert himself. Uh, Herbert is the managing partner of Highmark Capital. It is based in North Charleston. Highmark Capital invests in Black-owned, women-owned, and other minority-owned businesses throughout the Southeast seeking both a financial return as well as a social impact sort of mission. He has enjoyed 20 years of experience establishing, buying, and managing businesses in a variety of industries, including healthcare, IT, SaaS, and corporate training. Herbert served honorably in the U.S. Air Force and U.S. Marine Corps Reserves. He received a Bachelor's of Arts and Business degree from the University of Phoenix and is Associate of Applied Science degree from the Community College of the Air Force. Herbert, welcome. Well, thank you, Laura. Delighted to be here and to to share my perspective on this space with you. I feel like you can just type in online and, and get thousands of headlines around sort of this discrepancy or pay gap as it relates to venture capital or other risk capital flowing into to businesses. I mean, as of even August, Crunchbase found that Black and Latina founders raised only $2.3 billion, which, you know, billion might sound like a big word, but in the context of the total uh, venture that was going around, it was only 2.6%. Of, of the total venture. And I would say it's not only just that side of the equation, there's also we're missing out on both financially sort of the big market opportunity that does exist for empowering more and funding more minority owned businesses. So Herbert, so, you know, this is, I feel like this is like your topic of expertise. Like what, 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 what's your take on the problem? Let's define the problem a bit for our audience. The big problem is the existing venture capital firms and private equity firms they're just not used to committing resources to Black-owned businesses. And, and I do believe that in the most recent years when, they, when there have been funds committed to Black-owned businesses, they have been committed in the traditional sense. And what I mean by that is mostly passive investments, uh, checking in on a quarterly basis. One of the things that venture capital firms need to understand is that most blacks and women, they don't have the, I would call it the invisible ecosystem that exists in the Silicon Valleys, Austin, Texas, Triangle uh, in, in, in North Carolina. So finding a good finance and accounting firm is essential towards their success. Finding a great marketing firm is successful toward their success. And a lot of them just don't have access to these type professionals that are um, that can be found in the community. So a good venture firm will also take a holistic approach to investing in um, the, the, the Black-owned businesses because we, we just don't have the, the history of accepting capital and, and deploying it and, and using it appropriately for the most part. From a, a process standpoint, when, when I'll say more traditional VC firms are sourcing deals, is it you know, you always hear it's it's so relationship based. 
you know, do you feel like that's a, a hurdle that the minority founders are having is really building those relationships and those network bases for even getting their foot through the door? I, I do think that that that's a problem. And, you know, Laura, I, I would also say that most funding that flows into Black-owned businesses in the past have historically been in the form of grants, which for the most part, been a smaller amount. And, you know, John Rogers with Aerial Investments in an interview said a couple of weeks ago that I saw, philanthropy does not create wealth. And and then also, for, and I'm, I'm big in philanthropy. I'm the chair of the Coastal Community Foundation. So I'm, I'm big in philanthropy. However, in, in the space where we want to, uh, you know, really tackle the black wealth gap, we need to invest real money into businesses that can grow and scale. And, and a lot of times there are conversations I have with the, these entrepreneurs um, from folks telling them that we want businesses that can grow and scale without really defining what that means. Taking a guy who works for a trucking company and helping him purchase a truck is not necessarily growing or scaling a business. And it's just looking deep into the community to find where there are companies that have the growth and scale potential and not just scratching the surface and, and throwing your hands up and say, well, we looked and we can't find them. So do you feel like it's also potentially just not understanding the market potential for some of these, let's just say different products or science or technologies that, you know, these minority founders are going to focus on? Because, you know, typically usually the inspiration for an idea comes from some kind of personal challenge, right? So, you know, minority founders are probably more likely to create new innovations in markets that cater to a minority product service base. Do you think that's a that's a gap in knowledge with the investor base? That has not been my experience. Now, okay. I will say that there are a large, there's a large percentage of black firms out there who create, have these, have these ideas about businesses that you may think is, is just targeted towards um, their, their population. But more and more, what I'm finding is that a lot of the businesses, a lot of the great ideas that are out there, they they touch a broad swath of populations, not just here in the state, but um, nationally and globally with some of the some of the products that are out there. And, and you know, the, the, for those companies who have niche businesses that don't necessarily fit in that growth, high growth or scale bucket. If it's a side hustle, they may just need a loan to get their side hustle going. If it's a nonprofit, they need to have conversations with uh, someone in the nonprofit space to help them move the needle on their venture. Well, let's see. The Kauffman Foundation, you know, they, they put out a lot of great data. And, um, they actually they reference black founders rely most on personal credit cards to fund their company. Yeah. Which so I don't know that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know the fact that they're funding their business on credit cards is is you know why? Okay, I'm going to ask you that. Why do Why do you think the black founders are relying more on, on credit cards versus maybe you know other founders that that initial funding can sometimes be you know, the quote the the friends family and fools sort of round. What, what's your What's your take on that? Well, I, I think part of it is that we simply don't have the assets to get more money. And you know, even if you got a credit card with a $20,000 limit, um, you're going to burn through that pretty quickly if you have a business that needs, if there are capital expenses associated with it, or they simply need to invest in um, software development. Um, 
and, and that type of stuff. They, they simply, they'll, they'll run out of resources. Now, if you take someone whose family has had property, homes, and you can get home equity loans to, to lean in, to, to commit to your business, that, that, that's completely different. And, and also, we, we start at a lower economic level than, I'd say, the, the, the white entrepreneurs. So if we're making uh, $40,000 a year and we want to commit part of our income towards the business, well, that's a whole lot different than someone who's making $150,000 a year and they can commit the same percentage of their income towards starting their business. That, that's just different. And then you look at lines of credit. Um, you're not going to get a line of credit uh, with really with $40,000 when, when your annual income is $40,000, but you could get something decent when your annual income is $150,000 and you've got um, decent credit, a, a decent credit score. So it sounds like you, you would probably, as tempting as it might be, not advise a minority founder to pull a personal credit card. You know, is it, is it really a good idea for them? Or are they, in fact, maybe potentially, you know, creating a temporary Band-Aid and maybe even setting themselves up for failure? Like, what would you tell, if, you, if a founder asked you, should I go get a personal credit card for this, what would you tell them? I, I would tell them no. Yeah. Uh, and, and I would have a conversation with them to, let, let, let's walk, well, well, Laura, let me put it this way. Ten years ago, that that may have been something that you give real consideration to, uh, but but not now. There are too many. You know, you mentioned Kaufman Foundations. There, there are too many foundations. There are too many um, organizations that will give small grants, really, so you can test out your business idea. Uh, a, a five to ten thousand dollar grant towards your idea is significant, but it has to be, th those dollars have to be managed uh, appropriately. And I, I think the one thing that most entrepreneurs fail to lean into is uh, finding a good mentor or a sponsor to help them with their business. And, and you know, I'm not talking about your cousin or your uncle's friend, finding a true mentor or sponsor, that sponsor will help look for opportunities for you to engage. They'll make introductions for you uh, so that you could have some hard conversations about your business. If you've only got $10,000 or $20,000 or $50,000 $50, grant, you, you want to make sure that you're clear on what the outcome of that spend is going to be so that you're prepared to go to the next level and not just like some entrepreneurs do, you spend the, you spend the fifty thousand dollars, and then you try to go back to get an additional fifty thousand dollars because you simply ran out of money. You go back because you can demonstrate progress, and you're asking for an additional sum of money to move you to the next level. But most don't go in thinking that way. You're very gracious with your time and spend a lot of time out in the ecosystem with founders. You know, how does a founder find a you? Meaning, not only just an investor, but truly, you know, how does someone find that right? Or that right mentor to help coach them through a lot of what you're describing here? I think people find me because I'm, I'm very generous with, with my time. And what I mean by that is if, you know, if the chamber wants me to speak to some entrepreneurs, I'm going to have a conversation with entrepreneurs. Uh, I've done workshops for entrepreneurs. I, I you know, last, you know, I've, I speak at Rotary, um, 
so so anywhere where folks want me to have a conversation about what I'm doing, I have the conversation and the audience is there. And as I told the group uh, SC Bio a couple of weeks ago, if an entrepreneur reaches out to you, whether it's a cold call or it's a warm intro, have the conversation with them. You know, you, you, you will do them a tremendous favor. Sometimes you will share information with them that it's a blind spot for them that they weren't aware of. Have the conversation with them. Uh, I, I have, and I've been in the entrepreneurial ecosystem here, I guess the past 20 years. I've taken a company through an accelerator, um, just just talk with many banks, talk with, with, with many organizations who are helping entrepreneurs. And they point them my way, and I, I, I talk to them all. No, I, I, I in fact, uh, the state here we've had um, had Chris Hively. You know, he was the, one of the co-founders of, of MapQuest, and now has to kind of transitioned more to an ecosystem consultant. And he he is, he carries a lot of the same um, accolades as you would say in terms of. I think he's just like I will spend at least thirty minutes with a yeah. founder. I, everyone has thirty minutes to have yeah. a conversation. I don't. I don't. Nobody's nobody's ever too busy. For that, um, mm-hmm. and that's been sort of a, my key takeaway, not only personally but advice I, I give a lot of my ecosystem leaders is just just talk with them. Yeah. Um, but you know, so it, it's it, is it during these conversations like this that you feel like or is what the ecosystem needs the most? I guess my question is, what should investors and startup ecosystems do to help combat? all of these issues that we know minorities are facing, right? Like you've already outlined, they're already, you know, starting at the line further behind than, than others. And so I guess what can, what can myself and the ecosystem itself do to help address this issue? The, the first thing I would say is always be honest and candid with, with entrepreneurs, especially minority entrepreneurs. And, and, and Laura, I will tell you that I, I believe that uh, black entrepreneurs take challenges and, and bad news about their business opportunity better from uh, folks I would call black mentors in the community, someone with the lived experience, because, you know, I understand exactly what, what, what they're going to, to some degree, as I tell entrepreneurs, I have probably um, tripped up every landmine, <laughs> jumped over every valley there is, with the exception of bankruptcy. So there aren't too many stories out there that there aren't too many things that they will go through that I that I don't know of. Uh, with respect to what this community can do, I know the chamber is launching a minority business accelerator. Uh, Bernie Mazie is launching uh, the Opportunity Center in North Charleston. Um, there's also the Harbor Entrepreneur Center, um, and uh, I know that um, Increasing Hope is doing some work. I, I think just making sure that the opportunities that are out there, you know, quite frankly, if, if it were in a centralized area where people would, could just go and look and find out what these opportunities are. And, and, and well, all, all these where this ecosystem is to help them. And the other thing I, I would say is that there are tons of grants out there that entrepreneurs could use to, you know, test their idea out a little bit. Those processes, I believe, are unnecessarily cumbersome. And if those processes, if, if those processes were made easier, I, I think more entrepreneurs would lean into them. And then I would also say that a lot of the dollars that are committed to 
CDFIs and, and some of these lookalike organizations, they they can't present themselves as providing access to funding when it's just a step down from a bank. It's just that their target audience is underserved and underrepresented communities. You still can't walk in the door with a 400 credit score and no assets and get a loan. Right. <laughs> so, right. I, you know, the um, and I think I think that that perception that these organizations are putting out there, it, it's it's doing the, the black community, well, underserved and underrepresented uh, entrepreneurial population, it's, it's doing them a disservice. And I, I think there needs to be, be a way to, to, to manage um, expectations when folks go into these organizations. So this is something in-house in my office that we've been kicking around, which is women are, are, are have the highest percentage of, of creating small businesses. Right. But, um, you know, most of them are some kind of lifestyle business. They would never actually go raise money. And so this is actually some of our thesis with working with Increasing Hope is um, – you know, kind of building out a curriculum and, and an approach to helping minority and underserved communities understand or even entertain a high growth model versus just their shop on the corner, not to discredit, you know, that's their ambition. Yeah. That's beautiful. That's great. <clears throat> but, you know, do you think that's part of it is just, you know, that, that there's not an automatic mindset with the minority community that you, you can do something bigger than just your shop on the corner should you want to? We, we need people in the community who are going to pull these folks forward. And, and, and what I mean by that is when, when I have conversations with entrepreneurs who give this, uh, they, they share with me that they want their own business. I think that's great. Um, two questions I ask them. It get me to two hundred and fifty to three hundred thousand dollars in top line revenue within twenty four to thirty six months. Because we, we don't have time to put folks through an incubator that's going to, you know, hold their hands for a little while and then tell them, hey, go off and be married. Let's talk at the beginning about how this business gets to 250 to 300 within 24 to 36 months. But also in that conversation, let's talk about how we ensure that you're going to have a sustainable living wage using the MIT uh, Sustainable Wage Index. So a lot of these folks have never seen tools like that where you can go in in the privacy of your home and put in, you know, your living condition. And then this number pops up and says, this is what a sustainable wage is. And a lot of times it's higher than what they make, which is good. But then let's match the business to, to ensure that you can live and not create a business where you're hustling seven days a week, because it, it sounds great to say you've got your own business. But it's just treacherous to be involved in that business seven days a week. So having a conversation with, with, with these folks to talk to them about if you got a retail shop and you say you can do 350, what's your average sale? All right, great. Here's how much you have to sell on a monthly basis. Here's how much you have to average on a week on a, on a weekly basis. Here's how much you have to average on a daily basis. When you walk through that simple exercise with folks, Laura, the reality sits in, well, maybe I don't have something that will make $300,000 if my average sale is $18 um, per, per transaction. No, that's a, that's a really incredible exercise to run. I would say any founder through, not just minority founder, but um, you know, so let, let's pivot a little the conversation. Let's, let's give a chance to talk, actually talk about your actual investing fund, the Highmark Capital. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I feel like that's, that's sort of what all of our audience is sort of itching to hear, which is, you know, how can we, 
uh, access more investing opportunities um, or funding opportunities. So let's talk a little about high mark. Uh, what do you what do you look for with your deals? Well, and part of it I just shared with you, if it's a if it's a new venture, uh, let's talk about how we get to two fifty to three fifty. Uh, within within 12 to 24 months. Uh, the founder, of course, has to be people of color or a woman. And I, I also look to see whether or not this person will truly be committed. If it is a new venture, I walk them through the MIT Sustainable Wage Index uh, exercise to make sure that they understand that that's the number that we're going to plug in. I also, Laura, look for folks who understand that uh, you know your cousin or your aunt won't be doing your financials. I've, I've partnered with Elliot Davis. Uh, Elliot Davis, they gave me a lot of lookalike businesses. I shared some of the companies that are in the portfolio. So they, I know what the cost will be for Elliot Davis to lean in to provide that service. Also partnered with, obviously, marketing, uh, who will come in and do, they will have conversations with these entrepreneurs about what their business is and not send them an email and says, hey, tell me what you want on your, your homepage. They're going to have conversations with them and they'll do all the copy and make sure everything's you know, optimized for the website, working with the Charleston School of Law uh, to provide legal services. So that, that startup firm, as well as those early stage companies, they've got to commit that they will use um, the wraparound support services that I'm going to provide. Because if I'm investing in 12 companies, I don't want to have to hold... 12 different accounting firms accountable for getting me the data that I want and making sure, um, and, and I'll say this, any company that we we invest in, they, they have to understand that we're walk, working towards a Series A round or a Series B round. I, I don't lean into folks who tell me that they want to grow a business to lead to their son, and their son's mm-hmm. five years old. Right, right, <laughs> you know, right, right. <laughs> what, what, what their son wants to do. Um, I've had conversations with a young lady up in Edgefield, South Carolina. We looked at her financials and she's been doing north of a million dollars a year. She needs some expansion capital. I'll partner with the bank to do that deal. Um, but when I looked at her property versus her business and the value of her property was more than the business is right now. And when I asked her, well, what are you going to do if a real estate investment trust offers you $20 million for this thing in a couple of years? She didn't blink. She said, I'll sell it and move on to the next thing. That Those are the type of people that I want to have conversations with. Wow. So, okay. So you're, you're actually the first uh, to bring up sort of the checkboxes you require if you're going to work with a founder is they are going to use these trusted fair wrapped around services that you have sourced. Yes. And has that just come from not only, you know, your just personal preference, like you said, not wanting to keep up with, you know, 15 different, 12 different accounting firms. Is it also just, you feel like, is has it been in your experience that these minority founders haven't had these in place already? And so it's kind of checking multiple boxes at once, but sort of providing that concierge lineup them? Well, well, there's got there's got to be a degree of competence that the competence is there sure. with, with the entrepreneurs, and you know, if anybody can hop online and get a QuickBooks account, right? <laughs> but that that doesn't mean that you set up your chart of accounts right. That doesn't mean that your your P and L set up your cash flow statement set up right. One of the things that 
um, Elliott Davis will provide, the School of Law, they will also provide uh, courses. Uh, once a quarter, there will be a, a course that your entrepreneurs have to attend. I, I don't care how savvy they think that they are. What I want to know is that in, in three to five, five to seven years, when we turn you loose, you have all the core competencies necessary to run your business. And if you don't want to use the finance and accounting firm that we have, at least you know what to look for. And and I'll also say this, uh, Laura, is that a lot of the, I'll, I'll say the young entrepreneurs, they believe that just because they, they have a Facebook account and an Instagram account, they understand social media marketing. That's, that's just not true. And in, in some cases, they don't need Instagram as a part of their marketing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I know that, you know, we had a conversation with a, an entrepreneur a couple of weeks ago, and, and I asked, I said, so who's working with you on this? Is it mostly family and friends? I asked a question knowing the answer just because of how he was, the com- how the conversation was going. And he says, yes. I said, well, what is your, what do you, what is your sister going to do when we tell her she's no longer doing your website? And, you know, he said, well, she's put a lot of work into it. Well, she's put a lot of the wrong work into it. <laughs> you know, and, but I, but I, I have those type conversations with folks because I think that level of candidness is, is, is helpful for the entrepreneurs. They can walk out of my office um, bruised a little bit, but, you know, it'll scab over and they'll be, be, be much better for it because they, they'll know that I didn't lie to them. Well, or if they can't take that feedback, then they're probably not a, a great fit for your, yeah, yeah. your investing, right? If you can't, yeah. you don't feel like you can have that kind of collaborative, honest conversation, then it's probably not going to be the right partnership out yeah. the gate. And, and, I, and I will, just as a footnote to that, <clears throat> there have been some entrepreneurs that I've had great conversations with, and I've identified businesses where people have brought me ideas, but they don't want to take the idea to the next level. So there are businesses out there that some of these these entrepreneurs, they, they could lean into and, and do as well. And that's a little bit tricky, redirecting mm-hmm. folks, telling them, you know, telling them their baby's ugly, but I got a pretty one over here for you. <laughs> so, so that that's a little bit tricky. Need some nuanced language with that. <laughs> um, so I guess you know I'll, I'll I'll give you this this window. Is there anything either about sort of the first part of our conversation as it relates to minorities and fundraising that you want to further elaborate on, or and or anything with your actual investment fund? My goal is to raise fifteen million uh, with a hard cap of twenty million. I've got a soft commit of six, just over six million plan to do the first close here towards the end of the year. Um, 30 companies in the pipeline. I've talked to over 100 entrepreneurs in the past year. And 12 of the companies, I believe, are in will be investment ready when I do my first close. Fundraising is hard. And I will say that fundraising is even harder for the first-time Black fund manager. And, you know, I was very surprised Bank of America was the first uh, organization to lean in. They made a commitment to me. It was day 206 of, of my fundraising that they called and, and made a commitment. And I've got several other commitments. And, and what I would say to, I'd say financial institutions or really folks who, organizations who contributed to um, sort of some of the systemic issues relative to capital 
for, for, for black entrepreneurs and black businesses. You can't apply the old rules to, to, the, to what's happening today around you. You know, we're all, the, the data doesn't lie. When you're looking at, I think you said the number is less than 2% of, or 2.6% going into women and other underrepresented and underserved entrepreneurs in the community. Somebody, more people need to raise their hand the way that Bank of America has done and, and say, yes, I'll take a chance on this population, uh, on, on these entrepreneurs, and we'll see if we can make something great happen. And, and I will tell you, Laura, none of the firms that I'm looking to make an investment in are mom and pop, not to say there's nothing wrong with that. None of the firms I'm best investing in are owner operator. Um, these are firms that will create sustainable jobs. And these are firms that they know that we're looking for an exit in, in, in five to seven years. That's clear with everyone because I think we need some quick, big wins to establish the credibility in the in the black and women space uh, with, with these founders. Well, and I think, yeah, so there's not just the social part of it of, yes, we need to be setting aside, taking that risk, this risk more with minority and underrepresented founders. But there's also a huge, uh, you know, payoff for that potential payoff. I mean, I, I pulled this article that was, you know, basically a, the minority as a consumer base mm -hmm. in general is about a $4 trillion buying power. I mean, so th there's, there's not just that, yes, the social, we should do this, Bank of America, everybody should be doing this because yeah. there's, there's the real financial gain in, in doing it. Um, and yeah, you've brought up an interesting point, you know, that none of none of the others have really addressed, which is, I feel like there's so much emphasis on helping the founder raise money that we forget that individuals like yourselves are also always raising money, yeah. right? Like this is not your personal dollars. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's, let's talk about that a little, you know, I know you, you've, you've said you feel like that's been an added challenge for you as a minority fund manager, but like, let's, let's unpack that a little, just that process of, you know, how do you raise the money? Where does your money come from? Like what's your sales pitch to a bank of America? <laughs> my, my, my sales pitch is, I, I tell the story why I got into it because the context matters. And, you know, following George Floyd's death last year, I had a number of folks reach out to me asking me what they could do for the black community. And, you know, Lawrence, I, I told them, please don't commit resources to uh, another program or nonprofit, because I knew that there are resources flowing into the Coastal Community Foundation and, and, I knew what the, the data was telling telling me about the nonprofit. It said the way, make the commitment to closing the black wealth gap. That's where you need to commit the resources. And when I started digging into it and I realized that no one is, all the, the data points you just mentioned, that's when all that data hit me square in the face. And I realized that we need to move resources and wraparound services, the way that we do in the nonprofit space, we need to take that model and do it in the for-profit space and give these, um, these um, underserved, underrepresented minor, uh, entrepreneurs an opportunity to succeed. We can't just give them you know, $100,000 and say, hey, go out and do well, because some of them have never managed uh, that kind of money. But my pitch to them is I tell the story and then I, I share with them what everyone told me would be my two biggest barriers. Um, I didn't have a track record as a, as a 
uh, fund manager, and I could not, there won't, the, the, the pipeline just would not be there. So I immediately debunked both of those by sharing with them that Good Growth Capital is my venture partner in this. So let's leverage all of their experience that they have. You said you talked to Amy earlier. Mm-hmm. Amy was the one who asked me if I, if I wanted to do that. When I told her what I was doing, she said, look, we can get some economies of scale working together. Um, and she pulled her partners together. <clears throat> we got on the, on the call and they agreed to set me up as a sidecar fund. So when someone says, well, you don't have the experience, I said, no, but my venture partner does. And we're we're formed at the hip. Mm-hmm. And then with respect to not having enough deal flow, uh, I mentioned to you earlier, I've got 30 companies ready to go. And, you know, what what folks don't realize is when I tell them I've got a a a therapeutics company that's treating macular degeneration, uh, you know, that throws people for a curve. They, they don't expect that to come out of the black and, and, and women space. When I tell them about the AI technology, there, there are two uh, AI professors at Clemson that I'm working with. When I tell them about the new collaboration tools. So I, I share all that with them. I, I tell the ones that I've been talking to the past um, three months that Bank of America has committed um, and, and, and I share with them at least six sample portfolio companies you know, the one thing that's happened a lot recently is I always have conversations with black folks, the community reinvestment officer um, or someone that I know, and they're always excited. They're pushing me through. And when it gets to the white male, that's the person who says no. Mm-hmm. And they, yeah, and they get this. All the, you know, I, I sent an email to the folks one time. I said, God, these guys must all be taking the same class because it all sounds alike, you know. I have to ask this question because I feel like, you know, our listeners are just wondering. So as a founder, what's the best way? How, how, how do they get on your schedule? How do they get in touch with you? They can, if they find, they can hit my LinkedIn page. That's the easiest way to find me. I, I always answer folks. And one of the things I, I do, Laura, you talked about 30 minutes early. Uh, there's an app called Calendly. Have you heard of it? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You know it was created by a black guy? Nope, but I do now. <laughs> it's created by a black guy. I, I, I've got a 30-minute Calendly link, and I send that out, and I tell folks, just grab 30 minutes. And and sometimes it comes fast and furious where, you know, somebody will put something on there in, you know, for next week, and I'll look at my calendar and just wonder, who is that? <laughs> 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 And, 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 your day is exciting. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> what I've started doing is putting in parenthetical phrase how the person came to me, whether LinkedIn or some referral. Um, so, so I'll do that. And then I guess since you are actively in the process of raising a, a fund, you know, what? How do how do people find you? Is it would you prefer LinkedIn that way as well, or if somebody's looking to join your fund, how should they engage you? Can I give my phone number? <laughs> That's up to you. Yeah. 843-345-2227, or you can go to my, my LinkedIn page, or if you go to highmarkcapital.com, fill out the contact form. Um, you know, I, I as I tell folks, my goal is to respond within 24 hours. If you don't hear from me, nudge me. <laughs> All right, listeners, you have your marching orders. I really want to thank you uh, for your time this afternoon. And um, listeners, we hope you enjoyed hearing from Harvard and how we might fail as a state sort of address these minority issues. 
Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review. Join us on LinkedIn or Facebook at Scribble Innovation. And don't forget, sign up for our newsletters. Special thanks to my co-host, Laura McIntosh, the Managing Director of the South Carolina Department of Commerce's Office of Innovation. I'm Joseph Nuther, co-founder of Design Sensory and PopFizz. Additional thanks to our team, producer and editor, Hunter Foster, sound engineers, Mike Deering and Samuel Thomas, original music by Matt Honkinen, with additional support from Tia Nelson, Sarah Plemons, Ronnie Wilson, Robin Hendricks, and Lexi Williams. <laughs>